We interrupt this broadcast with some important news. Let's rewind and check out the biggest news stories from this week. It's time time for Taiwan This Week. Good evening. Welcome to this edition of Taiwan This Week, which today is being hosted by me, Gavin Phipps, as Keith Menconi is currently living it up in Tokyo. Joining me this evening in studio are long-time ICRT commentator Ross Feingold of the Washington-based DC International Advisory. Good evening. And Brian Hugh of the New Bloom magazine. It's great being on. And on the phone from Taijong, we have ICRT's Central Taiwan correspondent, Donovan Smith. Good morning or afternoon. And good evening and good night. There we go. Anyway, we have a busy show to get through today that covers a wide range of topics from nasty emissions to cat killing and judicial reform issues and even school uniforms. But we're beginning with matters of the United Nations and the government's decision this week not to apply for membership, with Foreign Minister David Lee on Thursday announcing that the Tsai administration will not be seeking United Nations membership but will, in his words, continue to pursue meaningful participation in UN specialised agencies. Now that statement is in response to reports that the Taiwan United Nations Alliance is urging the government to take measures to push for a UN bid and also that group plans to hold events in the United States in September pushing for the Taiwan's membership in the UN. However the Foreign Minister on Thursday said and I quote applying for UN membership is a highly politically sensitive issue that will impact Taiwan's foreign relations and no actions will be taken that could jeopardize cross-strait ties or surprise Taiwan's diplomatic allies. Now obviously former President Chen Shui-bian was a vocal advocate of UN membership for Taiwan and he applied in 2007. Of course that fell flat but of course Ma Ying-jeou came along and in 2008 he moved to a policy that opted instead to seek Taiwan's participation in United Nations specialized agencies instead which is basically a policy that Tsai administration looks like it's trying to continue. So, Ross, UN membership or participation in UN specialized agencies, what do you see as being best for Taiwan? Well, there, there are several ways to approach this. One is, uh, what, as you just mentioned, the obvious conclusion, which is even the Tsai government, the DPP government, has now recognized that the decisions made by the Ma government with regard to the UN may have been a prudent approach for Taiwan, given the realities of Taiwan's international situation. Frankly, there's just no other way as far as engaging with the UN other than seeking meaningful participation in, in the UN-affiliated organizations. The other side of that is, was the approach of the Chung government wrong? And and, and that's a, a good message and, and item for the civil society groups that want to continue to argue for Taiwan's entry into the UN to keep in mind as they go forward, these are non-governmental civil society organizations. They have every right to pursue this, whether uh, by activities here in Taiwan or activities in the United States. The key thing and what I, I would encourage them is to be prudent in how they go about it because one of the mistakes of the Chun administration and how they sought UN participation was to say it's unfair. In fact, they even put bus billboards, uh, advertising in bus stations and uh, bus stops and on buses in, in New York City that said unfair. Now, people don't like whiners, and it, it didn't come across well. It, it did not help Taiwan's cause in the UN at all for Taiwan to say, hey, you're all wrong, and it's unfair. That, that's just not a prudent approach. So I just encourage people who, who are still seeking Taiwan's entry, however unrealistic it is, to make better arguments than just saying, you're unfair to me. All right, Brian, do you think it's an unrealistic dream for um, Taiwan to join the UN, or do you think it's a possibility? 
I think it's unlikely. I mean, it is uh, not surprising that the Thai administration would take the stance. It was, you know, announced during elections as a campaign platform that Thai would seek to push for more, you know, participation in international organizations. Um, sometimes, particularly in the United States, with pro-Taiwan lobbying groups and so forth, entry into the UN is viewed as a way of maintaining permanent, um, some permanent form of independence for Taiwan. Um, so I think, though, we will see probably more contestation within international organizations about the status of Taiwan, such as what we saw recently with the World Health Organization and you know how Taiwan was labeled within that, the terms within which Taiwan was not referred to as Taiwan, but you know as some form of Chinese Taipei or you know China or Taiwan Province of China and so forth. But but the issue here is for for several years the DPP criticized the Ma government. So your your approach is wrong. The name that you're agreeing to to participate under is wrong. It's not good for Taiwan's dignity. So now are are, are we saying that actually the Ma government was right? It, it, is 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 the Tsai government you know coming way back down from criticism that they made when they were in opposition? I think that is true, actually, because, you know, in some sense, the Thai administration is actually continuing Ma-era policy. For example, the appointment of David Lee to begin with, I mean, that was protested because he was someone that was part of past KMT administrations. Um, he was also pa- part of past DPP administrations. Yeah, though he was criticized on those grounds for, uh, I mean, it was, it was expected that Thai would potentially change course, but I don't think that's happening. Right, Donovan, a surprise to you that they decided not to apply for UN membership or something you expected? No, not at all. I, I mean, I, the, uh, I, I, the the thing is that Tsai it came out right from the beginning and said she's she's not going no surprises. I mean, that was her big thing. Uh, and I think the uh, and actually following up on something that Ross said is as soon as you mentioned that we would be talking about this topic, I, I just remember how traumatically awful the marketing was on this the last time around. If you recall, the uh, bicycling uh, they, they portrayed the UN as as a bunch of countries bicycling up a hill in a chain with Taiwan, like, throwing their arms up, going, woohoo, you know, let's screw this. It was, it was really awful the way they marketed it straight across the board. It was, it was really kind of depressing. Uh, and I don't think she wants to go back to that because she was very intimately involved with pretty much uh, the, with, with all of Taiwan's uh, image at the time. And then, of course, there was the great big sign on top of the Taipei train station at the time, which didn't say Taiwan for the UN. It said UN for Taiwan, yes. which I always thought was rather backwards. Yes. But the marketing was traumatically bad. <laughs> I mean, it was really, really, really awful. I mean, I think that it was so badly done that it closed a lot of possibilities for Taiwan to try, try again. Um, messaging historically on that front has been pretty bad within the U.S., um, UN for Taiwan is one of the bigger, one of the more historical slogans. But in recent years, I think we've actually seen a backing away from even that kind of concrete demand among lobbying groups in the U.S. For example, now the main slogan is, uh, you know, keep Taiwan democratic or, you know, preserve something, something about preserving Taiwanese democracy. There's not that kind of concrete goal of, you know, realizing entry into the UN, which historically was a huge part of pro-Taiwan lobbying in the U.S., and moving on with news from central Taiwan this week concerns the Jianghua County government seeking to curb emissions. And apparently, fanar fanar, it's causing a bit of a stink there. And the Formosa Chemicals and Fibre Corporation is warning that its plant in the county could face closure in late September if the county government fails to renew a licence for coal-burning boilers. So, Donovan, you live in the area and have to breathe the foul air down there. So what's the beef all about? Uh, it's a Formosa Chemicals and Fiber Corp uh, factory, which is part of the Formosa Plastics Group. It's a subsidiary. 
Now, what's at stake is this giant 51-year-old industrial complex of factories and power plants, which is located in Zhanghua. Now, it's uh, prime real estate, but uh, the thing is that they've got three power plants in there, which according to a 19, in 1999 environmental permit, they have, they have a limit on the sulfur, out, uh, uh, the sulfur content of the coal cannot exceed 0.87%. But now, according to the county, that exceeds 1.2%. Now, the, here's what's really quite interesting about this, is that traditionally this, I mean, this, the, this, I don't know if traditionally is right, the right, right, right word, but basically the Zhanghua County government has passed their, the emissions on the coal plants in there that power the factories, which produce nylons and other uh, artificial uh, fibers, for ever since 1999, with no problem, all the way up until May of this year. Suddenly in June, the, the Zhanghua County government turns around and says, oh, uh, you're producing your sulfurs at 1.2%, which is way in excess of the, you know, of, of the agreement from 1999. And if you don't either put in two uh, gas, let's see the exact phrasing here, uh, gas, gas, uh, uh, gas fire, gas flu, uh, gas flu desulfurization system units, or they have to purchase coal with a sulfur content of less than 0.5%. Their permits will not be renewed on September 28th. Now they put and they put this in, giving giving them less than two months to comply. Now, so on one hand, this sounds like, okay, this is a good idea. After all, central Taiwan right now has the worst air in all of, uh, in, in, in the country uh, for the last few years. Uh, so a lot of people are jumping them down. This is great. This is wonderful. But on the other hand, giving them less than two months uh, to comply, taking a really hard line, which, by the way, they just doubled down on since, the, uh, since, since my Wednesday report, uh, they... They they really do come across as like they're going out of their way to conspire to shut them down. In that they decided to arbitrarily enforce this one this one technical detail, giving them no chance to to fix the problem. And the reason why this is tricky is that there's a thousand jobs on the line in Zhanghua directly, plus a few hundred downstream jobs. So the labor unions now and labor activists are now jumping up and down screaming bloody murder on this. And so the, and considering this is, this is well over 1,000 jobs on the line, this is one of the major employers in Zhanghua County. So overall, this is a really tough, you know, this is a tough one here. So the, so right now, Formosa, the Formosa Plastics Group, the, here's another weird wrinkle to this whole thing. They've lost uh, something like 1.7 billion um, over the last five years on this particular on this particular complex uh, because they you know they they're coming under pressure from China. They have other factories in other places, so this is a giant loss making uh, project for them. Uh, but yet they're voraciously fighting to keep it, which is a, a little bit weird. So there's a lot going on here, and it's not entirely clear what the motivations are for a lot of this. I, I suspect real estate may be a big issue here, but uh, maybe it's principal because they also have to defend the Miliao factor, the the Miliao uh, 
plant and the complex there. Uh, so I don't really know. It's a little bit, there's a lot of politics going on here. Now, uh, the the uh, Formosa Plastics Group is about to, uh, in the next few days, is going to put a proposal to the vice commissioner, the Zhonghua vice commissioner. Uh, they're going to come up with a second proposal on how to deal with the issue. The first proposal they put forward didn't address the sulfur emissions at all. It actually went directly to the PM 2.5, which is the politically sensitive um, uh, number that most people right now are getting upset about in the press. The Zhonghua County government turned around and just completely rebuffed them and said, that's not the issue at hand, and you're doing absolutely nothing to address your your specific uh, your, your specific uh, your, the specific problems that, that we're trying to crack down on. So the Formosa Plastics Group is now going to come back with another one, another proposal to, but the county commissioner won't meet them directly in the sending his deputy to deal with them. So where this is going to go, I don't know, but it's going, I, I suspect that it's going to get a lot more intense before the, the, the September 28th deadline. Now, the county commissioner, uh, he put out a quote which sounds like he's doubling down, and he's since doubled down more, but this is the most concise quote that we have. He said, in order to protect quality of life and the county citizens' health, regarding this case, the county government is absolutely going to audit according to the law, leaving absolutely no room for confusion. Formosa is being asked to uphold basic business responsibility to consider and protect their workers' rights, and according to the law, speedily fix the problem. So Wei Mingu is very, very clearly and very openly drawing the line, saying that they absolutely have to toe the line and, and solve this problem, or they're going to be shut down. Right. Brian, what do you see here? Emission, em, emissions over jobs or a trade-off eventually? I think it's interesting that it does come down to this dilemma. Um, I mean, there's no there's no great solution here. So that's that's often the issue with a lot of environmental issues in, in Taiwan, uh, particularly with where the power industry is concerned. So, I mean, I'm not, I'm not sure where the answer is. Um, yeah. Oh, this is a business that that creates a lot of emissions. We know that, and, and it's also been a, uh, an industry that's been important to Taiwan, not just for the people who work there, but as Donovan mentioned, the downstream employees. You know, it's not something you could move overnight I mean, to build a new plant in another country to pick up the capacity. It would take a long time and a lot of money. That's probably one of the motivations for Formosa to keep this plant operating. I, I suppose, like most of these situations in Taiwan, they'll give them an extension and they'll find some kind of solution with the company pledging to install some new equipment and everything will continue as it was. But but the key thing is that this will continue to be a polluting business. It's never going to go away as far as the dirty stuff that it emits into the air. Uh, so the, the question will be, do, do, do the people of that part of Taiwan want to make that trade-off? Right. And obviously this situation isn't going to go away overnight, and I'm sure we'll be talking about it in a few weeks, if not next week. Now, finally, in the first half of this show, a self-admitted cat killer's hearing this week resulted in ugly scenes out the t- outside, rather, the Taipei District Court on Tuesday. And Jen Hao Young, who is an engineering student from Macau, pleaded guilty to killing a well-known cat known as Big Orange in December of last year, and animal rights activists, along with trying to beat him up outside the court as they tried to push policemen out the way to basically hit him, the simplest way to say that, they also asked the court to give him a rather hefty sentence, especially considering the student is suspected.
suspected of killing another cat earlier this year. And under existing laws, the student faces a maximum prison sentence of one year and a fine of between 100,000 and 1 million NT. So is that enough? Ross, being the vegan in the room, what do you think? Well, the the issue is really not the penalties. Uh, the penalties are stiff enough. If there were stiffer penalties, it would not have deterred him from doing this because he's obviously an extremely sick person. You know, the, the more important thing is the speed with which the laws are enforced. I think the public has an expectation that uh, cases like this will be quickly investigated by the relevant uh, authorities. And the prosecution will happen fast. And and one of the things that I think is important in meeting the public's expectation is not to give somebody who's accused of such a heinous crime a very cheap bail that would allow him to be bailed out pending the disposition of his case. And that was one of the issues in the last few days, that uh, the initial judges or prosecutors uh, were were in agreement to give him a lower bail amount. And then uh, the public reacted negatively and the bail gets raised, which actually happens very frequently with uh, criminal cases here in Taiwan, unfortunately. Uh, So, no, not necessary to start rewriting the penalties at this stage. I think the important thing is to show that the justice system works with with, uh, the proper amount of speed and and that he is prosecuted and he is put in jail under the existing laws. He actually, uh, by the way, he actually admitted it's not suspected that he killed a cat earlier. I think I I believe he actually came out and admitted it. He also admitted to this this killing, and he's also suspected of other ones, uh, something like four or five more. He's definitely admitted to more than one killing. Um, there's yeah. actually there's a split again between the animal rights groups. I mean, some have disavowed the violence against him. Um, the interesting thing, though, is that there's been such backlash, and I think that you know there's not looking into the question of whether this person is mentally ill. There was such a you know angry reaction against him, a visceral reaction. Well, obviously he's mentally yeah, ill he's because only a sick person would do do this. A, a, a compulsion, I think, is the word that was used. He, he, he admitted openly he has a compulsion to kill cats. That's something that he feels he has to do. Um, it's broader questions of, you know, how mental illness is treated in Taiwanese society, I think. It goes back to that. Yeah, but regardless, uh, men- mental illness defenses are, are pretty rare in Taiwan, um, very unlikely to be successful. So it's almost not relevant to discussing because uh, he's not going to be found not guilty by reason of insanity for, for these crimes. I, that, that's probably a certainty. So again, we're back to the issue of uh, speedy disposition of his case. And all I have to say on the matter is, should he come to live in my street, I would buy a Rottweiler, a Doberman and a German Shepherd. Anyway, we now must take a short break for these important messages which are upcoming, but we'll be back with judicial issues, a couple of defence-related issues and a ruling on school uniforms. Welcome back to Taiwan This Week, and we're diving in right at the deep end here with judicial reforms and questions over who's going to head the Judicial UN. Now, on Sunday of this week, President Tsai Ing-wen withdrew nominations for the two top posts for the Judicial Branch, both Xiao Wen-ding, who was nominated to be President, and Lin Jingfeng, who Tsai picked for the post of Vice President of the Judicial UN, requested their nominations be withdrawn due to opposition to them from both lawmakers and civic groups. Now, Xiao faced criticism that 
while serving as a prosecutor, he colluded with the KMT to prosecute those seeking an end to one-party rule, while Lynn's criticism focused on allegations that an article she penned and that was carried by the legislature's October 2011 issue of the Criminal Code Journal was almost identical as a study published by the Judicial UN in June of 2011. Now, the presidential office this morning, or rather late yesterday, said it will nominate two more candidates for the posts by the end of August. And Brian, I mean, do you think there was any reason for these two nominees to withdraw? Or do you think Tsai Ing-wen could have made an effort to convince the naysayers of their actual abilities to serve as judicial officials? I think that in this case, Tsai did back down because of, you know, pressure from the New Power Party and other groups. Um, it goes back to, you know, a series of criticism against Tsai for continuing uh, appointments of, you know, officials that were previously part of KMT administration and so forth. We talked about, you know, David Lee earlier in the first half of the show. Um, in the case of Sia, it's quite interesting. I mean, you know, it goes back to his actions during the period of, you know, KMT one-party rule. That brings up a lot of questions of transitional justice right away. So it becomes very quickly a politically charged issue. Um, but, but Brian, he was a 30-year-old civil servant just carrying out you know, his job as a law, part of the law enforcement apparatus. Why, why are we criticizing him for that? The interesting... You, you were becoming part of an enforcement system. I mean, he was vol- this is somebody who voluntarily went in to become part of the apparatus of the martial law system and specifically participated in, in trying to jail people, basically the founders of the TPP. That, that, that's a weird choice by, by, you know, by the, you know, the, the, the presidential, you know, by the president, uh, you know, by the by, by the elected president, uh, you know, from the DPP, that's a very bizarre choice. But then, by that by that measurement, we the the after the end of martial law, every single prosecutor, every single police officer should have been fired. Well, that's the well, question every, of culpability. Every, I think. Here's, the, the thing is, is that you know, if you be, if you actually join, knowing eyes open, the kind of enforcement that you're going to be doing. You know, this is this was not like in like uh, oh, this is an innocent prosecutor who was suddenly plucked out and said, oh goodness, I think perhaps you know, oh my goodness, what are they doing to me? This this is eyes open going in. I am going to be part of the enforcement mechanism of a martial law state. This is something that was chosen directly by this person. I mean, this is not like... That's not true, Donovan. No, Donovan, no Donovan. he went to work one day and they told him, this is the case you've been assigned. He was a very junior prosecutor. Sounds, I'm not, I'm not like, defending It sounds him. like we're going to, like, you know, a Gerbil's question, you know, one of these classical questions of post-authoritarianism. Um, what I think is really interesting, though, is that Tsai seems to be trying to hew to this sort of bipartisan line. I mean, he was one of the people that led the charge against Chen Shui-bian in, like, 2007, for example. But, you know, now she wants him as part of her administration. I mean, yeah. I think the more important question here is whether these two individuals actually had the management and technical skills to operate or as the leadership of the judicial system. That seems to be lost in the debate here because you know, from, from my perspective as, as a lawyer, uh, the, the shortcomings in the judicial system right now are operational and administrative. Right, before we get even more heated here, we have another Judicial UN issue, or a judicial issue anyway. This is Tsai Ing-wen moving to establish and lead a Judicial Reform Committee starting in September or early October. So, as Head of State, do you think, Brian, she should be heading this committee? Um, I mean, that's the question of what she intends to accomplish here. Because, you know, she has seen criticism for being the Head of State and now getting so directly involved in this judicial reform process. I mean, obviously she has a background as a lawyer and so forth. Um, but, you know, like, 
the question is, you know, Tsai has so many things on her plate, for example, transitional justice, judicial reform, and so forth. But she's decided to take a very hands-on approach here. And if she really does want to seem bipartisan, for example, in, you know, in regards to appointing Sia as, as, you know, part of the judicial run, then what will that, what will that, what will that, the role of her being on that committee play? Donovan. Um, you know, I, 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 I actually, I, I'm, the, the part that I'm a little bit concerned about is she seems to be directly heading up committees, but also with the Aboriginal uh, issue recently, the, the Indigenous uh, reforms. She's taking on a lot of personal and direct responsibility, which in the short term looks good, but she's, it's going to blow back on her if there's any problems with any of these things. As far now, she is a lawyer and all of this. I don't know her qualifications on judicial reform because she hasn't acted as a lawyer for quite some time. Uh, I think I'll punt this one to Ross because uh, he seems to be uh, a little bit more knowledgeable on this than yeah. me. So, Ross, head of state, heading the committee, good, bad, indifferent? Uh, I, I do agree that it's a poor idea from the perspective of um, more so that she doesn't have on-point experience with this. Her the bulk of, of her experience as a lawyer was uh, on, as a trade negotiator uh, uh, in the Lee Dunghui and Chen Shui Bian administrations. So, uh, again, to the extent that the issues we're looking at are administrative and, and operational aspects of the court system, then no, she does not have uh, the on-point experience for this. If, if the purpose of this committee is to look at the transitional justice issues, then you know, she has on-point experience as a politician, not as a lawyer to be handling it. Um, but uh, I, I think it's unfortunate that we can't find qualified people actually from the legal world. I mean, we're just back to the same politicians, in this case, the president appointing herself. Uh, it's too bad we don't have very very good people who, who want to come at, come from industry and, and look at these issues. So right. I, think, okay, Brian. I think part of it is, you know, she wants to blunt possible criticism of judicial reform. There's such a demand for that and for traditional justice. But, you know, there's been a lot of criticism as well for, for her not going far enough. So I think she's hoping by putting herself on this committee, she can use her kind of personal appeal to kind of blunt criticisms. Same with, for example, the indigenous issues and so forth. Um, yeah, I mean, I think that's definitely part of it. Right. Anyway, let's move on from thorny legal issues and look at some rather thorny defence issues. Uh, well, the Ministry of Defence this week came out and it had to admit that its plan to end conscription may once again not actually end when it said it was going to end and they've now extended the conscription time frame into next year. Now, of course, this is the second time they've done this, or the third time. I've forgotten. It's happened so many times I've forgotten. But now they're saying that males of conscription age will have to serve their one-year compulsory military service into 2017 when they initially planned to scrap the conscription. Now, Donovan, could we see this coming, or did it sort of blow you over? Oh, no, we could totally see this coming. I mean, this is kind of an annual ritual now. I mean, obviously, the, the, the government keeps say, saying, oh, no, no, we're, 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 we're going to push forward on this plan. But every year, the, there, there's demoralizing actions, you know, the, 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 you know the, the killing of the dog and all of these things. So the morale is continually low, and it's not viewed as, a, as an attractive job. They try and add these perks and add to the salaries, but it's still not seen widely seen as, as an attractive job. The demographics are totally against this happening. Um, you know, and, and so I, 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 at this point, I've yet to see, uh, and you're, you're far better of an, of an analyst on this than I am, but I don't, I've yet to see anything that the government's put forward that's going to make this a, an attractive career option and that's going to 
be so attractive that it counteracts the demographic shrinkage of, of, of this age range. Right, Brian, would you look for a job in the military? Uh, well, I don't think so. Um, not currently. I mean, you know, it just it's not surprising, though, that there's been another more, you know, pushback. Um, it sounds like, you know, the tower and train, you know, when is it going to happen? Um, people talk about it forever, but whether administration to administration or year after year, keeps being put off. Um, yeah. I mean, there's, I mean, there's 215,000 members of the armed forces at the moment, and the government, or the previous government of Ma and the current government, do say they expect to slash that number to around 170,000 by 2019. So obviously they do need people to join the army, Ross. Um, a, a career with the military, Ross, for you. Well, the, the sad thing here is that it's also getting lost in the conversation is where's the patriotism? You know, it doesn't matter if you're blue or green, but where's the collective sense of responsibility to safeguard Taiwan? And that does require people to serve in the military, whether it's by conscription or volunteering to join as a, as a career. And we just don't see that message here. You know, part of that is is a a marketing message. Um, part uh, part of that is, is just educational, uh, and a big part of it is leadership. And, and we don't see that, right? We see people who look to do the minimum or to avoid it entirely. And it is an obligation that people need to defend Taiwan because Taiwan does face an obvious military threat from China. Uh, but we don't we don't see people in leadership positions, whether it's people who are successful in business or people who are uh, at highest levels of government, regardless of party, talking about it and saying, you know, it's a great thing. We want young people to consider this. I mean, and when do you ever hear the premier or the other ministers also supporting the, the minister of defense? Again, regardless of administration or party, we, we just don't see that aspect of support for national defense in Taiwan. Well, I'm going to pipe in here, Ross, and say a lot of that's got to do with the fact that the question is, if, if you join the armed forces, who do you defend? Do you defend, exactly. the, do you defend the Republic of China or do you defend Taiwan? And of course, there's a, there's a big gorge, like huge gorge between that. But that's why I said it shouldn't be a green or a blue issue, right? There's an immediate threat today. If you're in the military today, you're doing it to defend Taiwan today from the immediate threat that China poses. When I say immediate or, or today, that I, I mean over a broader period. So it could be a week or a month or a year, right? But So regardless of whether it's a blue government or a green government, we, we don't see leadership. And again, I'm speaking broadly. It shouldn't just be the Minister of Defense who talks about this, right? It should be the leadership collectively talking about the importance of military service, talking about the importance of defending Taiwan, regardless of how one feels about Taiwan identity issues. I mean, the interesting thing about military messaging, though, it is very ROC or it is very KMT because, um, you know, there's a lot of the messaging just kind of doesn't play over with a certain demographic because it seems so tied up with tradition of, you know, the ROC military. So um, it's okay to in, so, in, so yeah. it's okay to invade. Right? The question, though, wait, question though, wait, you're I, saying it's okay for young people to invade the legislature to oppose trade agreements with China, but they don't want to defend the I don't Taiwan know by serving not the military. Defending. I think it's a question that society generally doesn't have faith in. You know, military means to ward off China. So I think that is what is the lack of interest in the military is reflective of this broader social attitude, whether green or blue. And for our final story today, we're looking at school uniforms. Because the Ministry of Education on Thursday moved to relax regulations on general and vocational high school dress codes. Meaning that students will, in the government's words, be able to mix and match their school uniforms with sportswear or other types of clothing approved by the schools. So... I used to go, I'm English, I came from, I went to a school where I had to wear a uniform. I had to wear a green jumper, 
dress pants and a white shirt. They tried to give us a tie towards my end of time at school. That didn't go down too well because they were used as weapons in fights. So, Donovan, what do you think of scrapping school uniforms? <laughs> uh, well, I didn't have to wear a school uniform, so... Uh... Uh, I had a mohawk and uh, a lot of ripped and uh, ripped bits and leather and the safety pins. So, uh, <laughs> uh, it, it, from what I understand, they, they've all they've done is, is, as you mentioned, they've slightly loosened the restrictions. Uh, and the reports are basically most students are kind of yeah, whatever, you know, like it's not a big deal. They 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 either want it to be completely scrapped, uh, but they they don't feel like this is a bit major victory. Brian, school uniform, no school uniform. Uh, I mean, I'm not particularly in favor of school uniforms, um, but yeah, that is that does seem to be the reaction that people think it doesn't go far enough. Uh, the side administration promised loosening of restrictions, um, particularly along gender lines, you know, between male uniforms and female uniforms, um, particularly regarding female uniforms and objectification of women through skirts and so forth. There was the shorts issue, remember? That's right. Um, that was actually part of one of her campaign ads, you know, that she advocated allowing female students to wear shorts instead of skirts. Um, also, you know, ties into LGBTQ issues. How do you dress on base? How you identify? Um, and you know, people also criticize it on those grounds. Ross, school uniforms, no school uniforms. I think we're we're missing the key issue here, which is how heinously ugly so many of the school uniforms <laughs> in, in Taiwan are. You know, powder blue, uh, other really awful color combinations. It's the yellow ones. The, the, the yellow the, ones, the exactly. Yellow ones yeah. that get me all the time. Okay, so uh, you you share my opinion uh, and. Uh, yeah, I look forward to your application to join the fashion police. So there we go. We have to wrap it up this week. Now, I've been joined in the studio today by Ross Feingold. Good night. And Brian Hugh. Good night. And on the phone from Taijong, we've had Donovan Smith. Good evening. And, of course, me, Gavin Phipps. And we'll be back next week when Keith Manconi will be back in the host chair. Good night. Tune in again next Friday evening at 8.30 for another informative look at the top stories of the week with Taiwan This Week. And don't forget to also check out our podcast on our website, icrt.com.tw. Now keep it here for more music and news only on ICRT FM 100.